If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. We've been going through a series on this, and, and next uh, Lord's Day, we're going to be having Grandparents' Day, and if, if, the, if the preacher can get his act together, the, the message will really be kind of centered on the family. What, what does God say about being in the family of God and, and connecting with your family or the people that are closest to you? And, and we're going to celebrate Grandparents' Day, and if you'd like to find out more about it, in the back, there's a table out there that says Grandparents and Grandparents' Day, and RSVP. Now, the RSVP is not one of those things. If you don't RSVP, we're going to keep you from coming in the front door. Uh, but we're going to be having some pictures for grandparents. And uh, if you get an opportunity to fill that out this week, fine. But if not, uh, invite your family. If you have uh, kids, invite your kids or grandkids and, and just invite relatives as we're just going to celebrate what, what God has uh, for that which he has instituted. God has instituted the church. He's instituted those in positions of authority, uh, governmenting authorities, but he's also instituted the family. And, uh, and, and so we're just going to celebrate that wherever we are in that, in that journey in terms of being what God wants us to be. Well, in Luke chapter 19, what, what we have this morning is a very familiar passage. And as I'm even introducing this message this morning, I'm realizing that my time is a little shorter than I normally have. But uh, just relax. We'll, we'll, we'll get through with it. Uh, and, and what we're going to see this morning is one of the things that is interesting about the Gospels is that the Gospels have things that are repeated in each one of the accounts, and then there's some things that are not repeated. Sometimes they're repeated once or twice. You'll find it in maybe Matthew and John, or you'll find it in Mark and Luke, and, and you're saying, well, you know, if, if he put it in at least two of the Gospels, it must be pretty what? Important. And if he does it in three, you say, well, I better pay attention. And if he does it in all four, then you know it's going to be on the, on the test. Well, in the Gospel of Luke, this is the second occasion which Jesus uh, inspires through the Holy Spirit Luke to record an event in the life of, of, of the Savior and, and Lord that we come to worship. Uh, the first one that he uses that, he, that is repeated in all the other four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. And sometimes I think, in fact, actually I think Bill shared it two or three times that he, he came this morning he hadn't what? hadn't eaten, all right? And so he's really looking forward, not to the message, but for the fellowship time so he can have something to eat. And as you think about, uh, think about that, sometimes uh, Grace Hills is known as much as, for, as anything else is that we like to, we like to eat. Well, uh, you know, we're in good company because the, one of the things that are repeated in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. So, so food is, uh, is a popular subject in God's Word, and there's a lot of images that relate to God's Word that related to food. But that's one of the, the events that is repeated in all four Gospels. The other one is the one we're going to look at today. And, and it's, it's uh, what's called Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. And this is rather intriguing that this is repeated many times, uh, all four Gospels. And so there must be some, some, some significance to it. Also, a, a section like this can be a little bit challenging in that Sometimes the more familiar you are with the story, after a while, when you hear that story again, you stop what? You stop thinking. You stop listening. You think, well, I've been there, heard that, done that. You know, I don't need to hear anything more because that's, that's an old story that I've already mined the depths of it. Now, if you're new in, in this whole thing called uh, the church or Christianity, maybe you haven't looked at, the Palm, at Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry in any detail. Maybe that's the first time you ever read about it. But what we're going to try to do this morning is, is kind of just glean some things for us that, that should be helpful as we think about this, what, this event in the life of Jesus that, that God said was pretty important because he repeated it in all four Gospels. So Luke chapter 19, and, and this morning what we're going to ask ourselves very simply is a question, particularly about the, 
the major player in this event in the life of Jesus, and that's Jesus, and really a description of who he is and then our relationship to this description or label or handle about who is this Jesus. And really the question is, is Jesus your king? Now, most of the time when we think about religious talk or talking to people about Jesus, we might ask a question if we were in a place or experience where we feel they're open to it and we're eager to share that. Is Jesus your personal what? Savior. And we think about that role in the life of Jesus coming, and we know it's the prominent one, is that Jesus came to seek and to say that which was lost. Even in the name Jesus, he came to be the Savior for, from our sins. And so we think about, is Jesus your Savior? But as we think about that, we need to understand if Jesus is your Savior, he's also going to be your king. And normally, in other language, you might say, well, is Jesus your Lord and Savior? And really the idea here is, is, is Jesus the one ruling and reigning in your life? Now, often, if we want God to get in control, we're thinking about more him controlling the things outside of us rather than inside of us. Isn't that true? If something goes wrong, anybody have anything go wrong this, this week? Okay, if something goes wrong your week, you're thinking, Jesus, can't you get this into control? Can't you, can't you prevent this from happening? Or what if it does happen, can't you fix it? Can't you make me a little smarter so that which I chose to do, which I sh- shouldn't have done, that you could have told me that beforehand and convinced me not to do it or, or do it a little bit better than I did it so I didn't mess up with that which was already a mess and I just made the mess bigger? Anybody relate to that? You know, sometimes I think, I'm trying to fix this and all I did is make it worse, Okay. And so we're thinking about Jesus ruling or reigning on the outside, the things that are around us, rather than on the inside. But really, I, I think significantly in the, in the Palm Sunday event, and so what we're having is Palm Sunday in September rather than April, we're going to look at this and hopefully we'll see some very simple things that can be helpful for us. And because in the message I really have seven points, and most preachers are only supposed to have how many points? Three points. I, I doubled that and added one. So, so in the midst of what I'm sharing with you this morning, you, just just try to pick one out of the seven. Okay, there's six on one major, one subpoint, and I mean one major point, and and one basic point on the first one. But we're going to look at this morning the surprises from Palm Sunday and the lessons from Palm Sunday. So hopefully it's as, as clear as what the outline is trying to do. What 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 are the surprises about Palm Sunday, and what are the lessons from Palm Sunday? Well, the one, first one we're going to get without looking at the text, and then we'll run through the text this morning. What's the surprises from Palm Sunday? Well, if you're familiar with the story, I mean, the thing that uh, is kind of uh, colorful or informative about that is that Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and, and the crowd goes wild, okay? The crowd coming in from Bethany and Bethphage, the crowd coming out from Jerusalem. Here's a significant one that has been doing miracles everywhere. He has just done some major ones. He's, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. He's, he's brought sight to people who were blind. He, he rescued people that were far from him, that everybody thought there's no way that God could touch that person because they're a tax collector, a chief tax collector. And all of a sudden, Jesus is the, is the main topic in all of Israel and particularly in Jerusalem. And so as he's coming in, they're just, they're just pumped because they're thinking that not only is he able to, to fix people's individual challenges, he can rule and reign in their sicknesses, their diseases, their, their lifestyles, but maybe, maybe he can somehow get us out of the bondage of Rome, and this kingship will, will splash over 
everything that we're experiencing right now. And so they had certain expectations of Jesus. We have sung Hosanna. And Hosanna simply means save us and even adds a timetable to us. Save us when? Now. Now, the problem with that is, is they missed it. And what they had, they had the wrong expectations of why Jesus came. Now, he did all the miraculous so that they would know for certain that he was who he claimed to be. And we've talked about that. He was the son of man, son of David. And for them, that meant he was the son of God. He was the one who was promised to come and change everything. But what they missed is, what I'm coming to change first is not that which is wrong on the outside, but that which is wrong on the what? Inside. But let me put it in a little bit more plain language, because many of us have gotten that part. Oh, yeah, Jesus came to save me from my sins. Okay? So I, I, I check that box off, and all of a sudden I realize, okay, I'm forgiven. Now, because I'm now forgiven, and Jesus is not only my Savior, but I've said he's also my Lord, then my life now ought to get, fill in the blank, better, right? Isn't that true? I mean, I'm going to come and know Jesus, and my life's going to get better. But what I want to submit to you, that if we phrase it in the question, if you come to know Jesus, will your life get better? The answer to that is yes and what? No. And if you don't get that, you're going to be disillusioned in this journey of following Jesus. And all you have to do is kind of take a step back and say, isn't that true in other parts of life? Okay, like, like, let, me, let me put it this way. When, when you um, uh, choose to get married, you are convinced your life is going to get what? Better, right? But let me ask you the other part. When you choose to get married, you believe your life's going to get better, but are you totally convinced it's going to get easier? Now, some people do, okay? I'm going to have someone who's going to wash my clothes, make my meals, you know, it's going to be at my ever beckoning, you know. Okay, um, does any, did anybody get married? Okay, anyway, okay, is that, all right. When you get married, you want your life to get better, but it's not going to get easier, well, let's back up a little bit in terms of the, the family. Well, you know, if, if you, if you uh, choose to have children in your home, you, the reason you're going to have children in your home is because you believe that your life's going to be what? Better. Now, however, if somehow you are in that disillusionment that your life is going to be what? Easier. You're, you're, in, for a, you're in for a challenge, okay? And, and let's even put it this way. Okay, now in, in, the, in the glorious role of being a grandparent, okay, is that, you know, that's the most tempting. You want grandkids. We all want grandkids, you know, if you have your own kids, okay? You get tired of your own kids, maybe the next batch will be bought better, right? Okay, so you, you're convinced, you're convinced that if you get grandkids, life's going to be better. But sometimes we think it's also going to be always easier. Now, I'm not going to belabor this point because I've already belabored it, but but if, if you think life is going to be, it's better, but you think life's going to be easier as soon as your grandkids arrive on the scene. Just talk to Pam and, you know, and, <laughs> and John. Has it been easier since they arrived on the scene? It's been better, but has it been easy? All right. <laughs> well, 
John's still dying in church. All right, I'm lying in church. Okay, yeah, I mean, it complicates your life. It's better, but it's not easy, right? And I just want to submit to you that Palm Sunday is a story where, where Jesus, in case I don't belabor this point, in, this, in, in, a, in an experience where people are joyful and, and they're praising God and they're just so enthusiastic and everything looks bright and sunny and shining out there, in case, in case I don't get to that point, is that at the end of all that, it says that Jesus wept. So in the midst of probably the most boisterous praise he had experienced since he had arrived on the scene, it broke his heart. Why? Because they had wrong expectations. They didn't, the vast majority of them didn't want Jesus to, to be the king of their heart, their life. They didn't want him to rule and reign in their life. They didn't want their lives to be fixed. They wanted the world to be fixed. The world won't be fixed until we're fixed. I think a, a man named C.K. Chesterton, who I've only read quotes about him, I don't think I've read any of his works, but he said, you know, so he was asked, what, what's the problem in the world? And he said, I am the problem in the world. And so we have to be fixed on the inside. So wrong expectation of Palm Sunday is that, that it's going to make life easier. It's going to make it better, but it doesn't mean it's going to be easier. Well, what are, that's the, the, wrong, uh, the surprises from Palm Sunday because we, we're always surprised when we settle in on that. But what are the lessons? And here we'll try to run through the text this morning. Uh, Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 28. After he, this is Jesus, had said these things, he, uh, and that was the story we looked at last week, and I'll resist the temptation to re-preach it in case you didn't remember last week. That was, the, that was the whole thing where he challenged them about the minas and investing your life and being busy while he's going to take off. After he said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So he was actually traveling physically, climbing the hill, probably elevation going from one place to about 3,500 feet, and, and it was about a 15 to 17-mile journey. And so he was, he was going up to Jerusalem. And then verse 29, when he had approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he, this is Jesus, sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. And tie it and bring it here. Now all I'm going to do this morning is just kind of run through this story and say, well, what are some of the things you see here? and What are some of the lessons you could kind of pick from that? Now, part of it, you know, particularly in what's called a, a historical narrative portion of God's Word, which is this is a story, this is an event. You, you, kind of, you can also place yourself in the scene and, and maybe take on one of the, the roles of the, the people in the scene. Let's say you were one of the disciples of Jesus and you were given an assignment. And, and uh, in case you haven't got that, God does that. He gives us assignments, all right? And so he gave a couple of his disciples an assignment. said, okay, I want you to go into the village and I want you to find a colt and I want you to do what with it? I want you to take it. Now, let's just stop for a moment, okay? And sometimes we have to think through a story. Uh, uh, he, was, he was, what appears on the scene, I want you to go someplace, I want, to take, I want you to take somebody's car. You see somebody, see this car over here? And when you get there, just take it. Now, it wasn't a car, it was a donkey, and, but uh, think about that for a moment. And, and so they did what any sane person would do. <laughs> they they kind of they, they wrestle with that. You know, and, and so he goes on and assumes that, and, and he gives him a little bit more detail. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, 
Why are you taking my, my car? Why, why are you taking my, my donkey, my colt? And you shall say, the Lord has need of it. Now think about it for that for a moment. The rationale. And I'm just using the car as an analogy. You, you, you feel the Lord is calling you to take someone's car. Okay? And, and, and so you're at the car. You're hoping they're not home when you're taking their car. And all of a sudden, they come out of the house while you're taking their car. And, and so they want to, what are you doing? Well, I'm taking your car. Why are you taking my car? Well, God has need of it, you know. You know, we need to realize that sometimes Jesus asked people to do something that were a little outside their comfort zone that did not always make sense. And so just because, I think in the story, he kind of repeats the account, he goes on and says exactly what did happen. So verse 32, so those who were sent away and found it just as he had said, and as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And of course, they come back with the phrase, the Lord has need of it. It's not put in this particular record of the, of the account. So, so what would be the simple observation of the Palm Sunday story is that as we think about the lessons from it is what we need to realize is that we're supposed to do what Jesus, what, says. Now, in, in, case, in case somehow you're thinking, okay, I'm going to be praying, Lord, do you want me to take anybody's car out here? In fact, there's a few cars out there that I would rather trade in my little Hyundai accent for. So some of you, okay, look at do what the Lord says. And, and sometimes what we do, is we're looking for something esoteric out there or mysterious or something where he will divinely impress on our mind and we'll do something strange or weird or adventuresome. Now, the reason they were to do what he says because he was right there and he was saying it to them. But what God has done, because we have a tendency to forget many times what he has said, is he has written it down. And the lessons we need to learn from Palm Sunday is that that we need to have Jesus as our king. He's ruling and reigning in our life. And if that is true, we are committed to do what he says. Now, I, I could list all kinds of things that are o- just overtly challenging to me, but let me just take one of them that kind of, it kind of surrounds everything that we do in relationships with people. Luke chapter 6, 31 and 33 through 33. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Have you had any conversations with people this week? Have you had any kind of uh, conflict with anybody this week? Has there been any rough times with people this week? And, and maybe you didn't like how they spoke to you or what they did to you. And, and what we learn from the Palm Sunday is do what Jesus says. Even it's even it just... Way beyond our comfort zone, it doesn't make sense to us. The Bible says that when people treat you poorly, you don't treat them like they have treated you, but you treat them like you wanted to be treated. Does anybody find that easy to do? And he goes on to, to kind of give us some rationale about that. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? We ought to be distinct because we're Christ followers. For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. So I'm sure this, if, if we make application of this next week, that there, there are going to be opportunities for us when people don't do good to us because we're... Christ followers, Jesus our King, we're going to be thinking, now how can I do them in, but what can I do good to them? 
Because God has loved me, he's done good to me when I didn't deserve it, and I want to be loving and good to them when they don't deserve it. There are so many things in God's word that really speak right to where we live, and we don't have to have something strange like go pick up somebody's donkey and bring it to me. But how about treating others the same way you want to be treated? Well, let's move on because we just want to hit some highlights here. And I just want to read one verse and then make a point. In verse 35, right after you know, he talks about picking up that colt, he says, oh, the Lord has need of it, uh, verse 34. And then he says, they brought it, and it is in the text there, they brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. Now, now in Matthew chapter 21, verse 2, when I think of a colt, I'm thinking of a you know, horse, you know, this, you know, ride a colt. But th- this is not that kind of a colt. It, it's, it's the... Um, the product of a, of, a, of a donkey. And so what you have here is you have a young donkey. And Matthew 21, 2 identifies that very clearly. And, and then as we think back about Palm Sunday and we're thinking about Jesus coming in what's called his triumphal entry and he's celebrated by all who are coming out. Hosanna, they're praising out and, and, and all of that. And we're thinking, well, why is he coming in on a donkey? You know, we've all been to Ironwood. In fact, this week, I encourage you to pray for Ironwood uh, Christian Camp and all that they're doing. Uh, you have opportunity. You want to go on a horseback ride. Now, when I've been there, I don't think they've ever said, does anybody want to go on a donkey ride? Okay? <laughs> I mean, who, who wants to go on a donkey ride? I guess maybe go, unless you're going down um, the Grand Canyon, you know, that kind of thing. But, but, but what you need to realize about Palm Sunday is not only do we need to do what Jesus says, but we need to see Jesus and how he's portrayed at the triumphal enter your Palm Sunday. And he's dis- he is displayed in his majesty and humility. And this is all fulfillment of prophecy, but in Zechariah 9, 9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus had the right to, to be who he claimed to be, which is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that is identified so much clearer in other sections of Scripture. But as he came there, they were to see him in all of his majesty. And from a Jewish perspective, they could see this is often how the, the king was brought into a procession in which he was anointed as king. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 32 to 34, you have David bringing in his son Solomon as the king, riding on a donkey. But in the midst of it, there's a kind of a double meaning here. A donkey is a, is a, is a animal of servanthood. And, and so he, he's a king, but he's, but he's also a servant. And that was part of the problem they had with him. How could Jesus be king? Because look at, look at how he was born and where he was born. And, and, and he doesn't have the trappings of being a king. And they thought of the Roman Empire, and when the Roman emperor come in, he, he would be, after a victorious battle, he would come in a white stallion. And as we really get the lessons of Palm Sunday, we need to realize that we need to, to do what Jesus says, but we also need to see Jesus as he is. He's not only the one who is majestic, but he is the one who came as a servant. But let's not be mistaken. When he comes again, in all this power, in First Kings chapter and. Revelation chapter 19, he's going to be riding a stallion. Let's move on. Verses 36 to 38, a familiar section in the scripture. It says, as he was going, Jesus, they were spreading their coats on the, on, 
on the road. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And this is the part where we see, and we've celebrated Palm Sunday here where we, in fact, this last, last Easter or last Palm Sunday, we, we invited you to bring coats that we could give to Orange County Rescue Mission. And we just, we just filled the center aisle with coats and, and then we took them to Orange County Rescue Mission. And we also had our children coming waving palm branches and the palm branches, why, why did they use palm branches? Because in the second Maccabean revolt, what happened there is that they, 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 they celebrate the victory with palm branches, which is God has delivered us. And so they were celebrating what they thought was their legitimate expectation that Jesus is going to come and deliver us from the oppression of the Roman Empire. And I think what we have to do here is just to recognize that, that God wants us to, to understand one of the lessons from Palm Sunday that's not just to be lived out on Palm Sunday, but every, every day is there needs to be no false praise of Jesus. And if we're expecting Jesus to do what he's not promised to do, then, then we're, we're going to miss it. And, and there's a debate about how many in this crowd were at the, at the place in which they were before Pilate and when he gave them an option, you want, us, you want me to release Barabbas, a, a, a convicted murderer, or Jesus? And they got incited by the religious leaders as in Mark chapter 15, answering Pilate, they, they said to him, then what shall I do with him who you call the king of Jesus? They shouted at him, crucify him. And, and so we look at Palm Sunday, we, had, we saw all this praise, and yet it was so shallow in many. Because it only took a few days for, for one to anoint them as king and then to say, just kill him. Now, we're not going to go to that level, but there's sometime when we sing some of the great choruses or hymns of the faith, and there are some challenging words in there. And, and, and when we sing them, we don't want to only sing with our lips, but the commitment of our heart. A lesson from Palm Sunday is do what Jesus says. See Jesus in his majesty and humility and no false praise. And just a few more. Moving on and as we, as we, this one actually is not in the text in, in Luke, but I, I just wanted to bring out this point. As you think one of the lessons from Palm Sunday is you need to understand that some things about Jesus you won't understand immediately. Because it wasn't just the crowds who didn't quite get it. The disciples didn't fully get it. It says in the account in John, which is a much shorter account, it says in John chapter 12, verse 16, these things his disciples did not, what? Understand. <laughs> At the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. You know, part of really understanding what the, the scripture says is what did it mean to the people who it was initially written to? But we need to understand some of the people that it was originally written to, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They didn't understand until after the cross. And, and so as you go through life, and this is part of the the wrong expectations of Palm Sunday or surprises from Palm Sunday. As you go through, we are called to be believers, but we're not going to be totally understanders. Are there some things in the Bible you don't quite understand completely yet? Well, that shouldn't surprise you. That was true of the apostles. And we're not going to really see Jesus as he really is until we see who? 
See, Jesus, that's throughout the scripture. We're not going to, we understand in part, but when we see Jesus, then we'll understand what? Fully. In case I'm not pricking a need here is, we, we often ask Jesus the W question. What's the W question? Why? And, and, and when we don't get an answer, then we, well, why don't I get an answer? Because there are certain things in this life now we're not going to understand until we see them face to face. And when I get that, it just kind of helps me on the journey a little bit, right? I, I like to understand things now. But I need to understand that's not going to always happen. Two other quick ones. Verses 39 and 40. So after the crowds are praising, there's a reaction from another group within the crowds. Verse 39 and 40. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. There's so many things in there. It's kind of almost comical how Jesus responds back to it. But there's a very simple point here. And what's that point? You know, don't get in the habit of telling Jesus what to do. All right? Isn't that a good lesson to learn? I mean, uh, let's be honest. I know in my prayer life, a lot, lot, all of my prayer, you know, life, I mean, there's a, there's a variety of elements in my prayer life, but there's often a significant part of my prayer life, if I were to analyze that and say, I'm not asking Jesus' will to be done. I'm telling Jesus what the will should be that Jesus has, right? We're telling Jesus what to do. That's not our place. And we can see it obviously here, but we can ask Jesus to do anything and everything, but... It's his will to be done, not our own. Then finally, be ready for what Jesus says is coming. This is a larger section, but let me just read it. When he approached to Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. And the interesting thing about here is he wept loudly and passionately. The other time we have the record in the Gospels before the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus had wept, really one other time was at the at the healing of or resurrection of Lazarus, and it's the favorite Bible verse for everyone. It's Jesus what? Jesus wept. Well, here's the other time right here, right? But there it was kind of a, a quiet sobbing. Here he's wailing, saying, if you had known this day even the things which make for peace, but, but how they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when the enemies will throw up a t- barricade. And he's talking about something that's soon going to happen in AD 70. 600,000 Jews are... Are, are, are slaughtered by the Roman Empire. Uh, there was, they were on siege for 143 days. There, there were th- thousands that were taken back in, in, in captivity, and, and, and the temple and the city was destroyed. And, and surround you, and then you on every side, and, and they will level you to the ground, and your children within you, and, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And what he's talking about there is the arrival of the one who was promised for you. And so as we think about one of the lessons from Palm Sunday is we need to be ready for what's coming next. And there's, there's two major events that's going to happen. There's going to be the uniting of God's people immediately to be with Jesus. And then there's going to be a time of judgment upon those who are not ready. So what's the point this morning? Is there any way any of us can celebrate Palm Sunday a little bit better, even if it's in September and not in April? Are there lessons that we could, could live out? There's so many things that God wants us to be as we follow him faithfully and fully. We want to do what he says.
We, we don't want to be surprised about our wrong expectations. We need to see him in his majesty and his humility. We, we, we need to know that God does not delight in false praise and we're not going to understand everything immediately and we never tell Jesus what to do and we need to be ready. Let's, let's be people who get what Palm Sunday is all about.